my name is Joe Hawkins, and this is the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, 50 Objects. Welcome back to another episode of History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 50 Objects. Still getting used to saying that. Before we dig into the episode today, I wanted to set the stage a bit to understand the importance of the object we'll be discussing. These objects aren't created today, but throughout much of history, they were considered immensely important for surviving generations. I'm talking about death masks. Today, death masks seem quite morbid. And due to advances in picture-taking technologies, they also seem kind of unnecessary. But in ancient times, when the talents of artists were the only way to preserve the look of famous people, taking a plaster cast helped ensure their countenance endured the ages. The process of creating death masks dates back to ancient Egypt as part of the mummification process. But throughout the 18th and 19th century, the practice was picked up as a way of preserving the likeliness of an individual so that sculptors could create statues and busts of the person, as was often done in Rome. However, in the 1900s, death masks took on a value all to themselves. For example, in the year 1793, about 50 years before the date of our episode today, France was burning hot as a new republic. The French National Convention was preparing to celebrate the first anniversary of the abolishment of the monarchy and the creation of the First French Republic. So, to celebrate this creation, the Republic decreed that all royal tombs be destroyed. How dare the monarchy be buried in glorified sepulchres while the common man was covered with dirt? Even in death, the monarchy was still haunting the French. So, the crowds made their way to the Basilica of St. Denis. This basilica housed the heads of all the monarchs dating back to Clovis, the first in 465 AD. A mass grave was dug. The tombs unceremoniously ripped open and the remains were dumped into a pit. When the French arrived at the coffin of King Henry IV, who died 200 years previous, they were shocked to find his remains were still fairly intact. His eyelashes, his beard, his skin was still on his face. This was due to the fact that Henry's doctors had embalmed his corpse in the style of the Italians, meaning his head was preserved. So before dismembering the body and dumping it into the grave, People sympathetic to the royalty made a plaster mask of his face, which was replicated throughout the kingdom. Years later, in 1817, when France gave up its hatred for royalty, an attempt was made to dig up the remains of these rulers and properly bury them back where they belonged. Due to Henry's death mask, his was one of the only heads they felt confident in recognizing. Now, over the centuries, death masks were made for everyone. We have death masks for Beethoven, Napoleon Bonaparte, Benjamin Franklin, Frederick the Great, Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee, Martin Luther and Isaac Newton. If you are famous in the last 500 years, we probably have your death mask. Now, I find death masks incredibly interesting to look upon. The way they capture the face of the individual just as they were taken in death, and the life-size way they capture the countenance really helps to get a better understanding of the person. But of all the death masks in history... The most popular in Europe is called the Unknown Woman of the Sin. The story goes that in the 1880s in Paris, officials pulled the dead body of a woman out of the Seine River. 
Since the body showed no signs of violence, suicide was suspected as the manner of death. Now, according to the story, a pathologist in Paris was so taken by the woman's beauty that he had to make a wax plaster cast death mask of her face. The fact that the woman seemed to be smiling in death and so beautiful caused the death mask to quickly become a fashionable, morbid fixture in society. The fact that nobody knew who she was made it even more popular. This death mask would inspire poems, literature, and art across Europe and throughout Russia. Copies of this death mask can still be found on many mantelpieces in Paris today. So considering that, should we be surprised to find that death masks inspired artists in America as well? Such was the case for young Cyrus Dallin. As a young boy, Cyrus's father wanted to take him to a traveling museum that was in town. The museum was considered a Mormon museum. As young Cyrus entered the tent, he was enthralled with two death masks. The lifelike look of these individuals, the way the masks captured their features, and even with one, the bullet wound on his face, Cyrus was so moved, he decided then and there that he was going to be a sculptor. This drive would take him to Boston to study at MIT. His works on Native American men would earn him a living, and he'd become famous for his equestrian statue of Paul Revere that's now found in Boston, Massachusetts. His most famous work, however, would be the Appeal to the Great Spirit, a statue now found in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. A statuette of the Great Spirit resides in the permanent collection of the White House. And if you've ever seen any videos of Bill Clinton speaking from the Oval Office when he was president, you'll see a copy of that statuette on his desk. But of all his works, the one that Cyrus Dallin, who wasn't a member of the Mormon Church, would say brought him closer to God than anything he ever did, was the statue of the angel Moroni on top the Salt Lake Temple. All of these great works inspired by the death masks of two men. Today's objects are the Nauvoo death masks. So what are the Nauvoo death masks and how did they come about? By June of 1844, population in Nauvoo had grown it into the largest city in Illinois. Every day, more and more Mormons streamed into the city, new converts from the eastern states and also from Europe. As Nauvoo continued to grow, some of the agitations from Missouri carried over into Illinois. In particular, the non-Mormon cities in Hancock County Illinois felt threatened by the political power and the growing Mormon voting bloc. To add to that, many of the non-Mormons in the county had grown suspicious of Joseph Smith. They felt he was running the city like a theocracy. For not only was Joseph Smith the prophet and president of the Mormon church, he was the mayor, the head of the municipal court, and the general of the Nauvoo Legion. To add to all of this, Missouri had sent a number of lawmen into Illinois to extradite Joseph Smith on continued charges regarding the Missouri-Mormon War. Now, because of the Nauvoo Charter, an object we discussed in a previous episode, Joseph Smith could appeal to the Nauvoo Municipal Court and have it issue a writ of habeas corpus to force his release. The non-Mormons in the county felt that Joseph Smith was now unlawfully dodging the law. More and more, the newspapers in the cities of Warsaw and Carthage began to demand that Illinois officials reconsider the Nauvoo Charter, and some articles even began to declare the Mormons a nuisance to the state of Illinois. The Mormons, who'd seen this story play out a few times before in Missouri, were now on the edge. That's when the Nauvoo Expositor hit the presses. In episode 31, 
I mentioned how a number of dissidents in Nauvoo began to write their own newspaper. William Law, who'd been very close to the Mormon leadership, felt that Joseph Smith was now a fallen prophet. The purpose of the Nauvoo Expositor was to bring to light all of the things they felt Joseph Smith and the Mormons had done wrong and to force Joseph Smith out of Nauvoo. The Expositor called into question Joseph Smith's character by bringing up doctrines they didn't like, like polygamy and other issues that they didn't feel was correct with the church. It even called for the citizens to rise up and sweep tyrants and miscreants from the earth. To Joseph Smith and the leadership, this was very agitating, but to the Mormons in Nauvoo, this felt like a call to arms. Sidney Rigdon would record in his journal that the people of Nauvoo were so worked up that it felt like they'd be rioting in the streets with the locals taking justice into their own hands. The Mormons weren't just worried about what they felt was slanderous lies. They were worried that the expositor would get picked up by newspapers in other counties and restoke similar militias as those in Missouri that would force the Mormons out of their state. The one and only copy of the expositor was printed on June 7th of 1844, and the next day, Joseph Smith and the Nauvoo City Council met to determine what was to be done and how they could avoid the Mormons taking justice into their own hands. After a few days of deliberation, it was determined that the expositor press should be destroyed. So on June 10th, the town marshal and a group of men marched down to the offices of the expositor and destroyed the press. Now, keep in mind that at this point in United States history, the Bill of Rights don't extend to the states. This is before the Civil War, and there is no freedom of the press. In fact, the Mormons had had their printing presses destroyed a number of times in Missouri, and their leaders had been tarred and feathered in the process. But nobody seemed to take notice of that. That wasn't going to be the case here. The expositor leaders immediately left Nauvoo for Carthage and brought up charges against Joseph Smith and the leadership. The charges were that of riot, the thing the Mormon leaders were trying to avoid by destroying the press. So, as was permissible in the Nauvoo Charter, Joseph Smith addressed the charges in Nauvoo, and all the witnesses testified that no riot took place, and he was acquitted. But to the non-Mormons in Carthage, this wouldn't fly. They felt that he was again avoiding the law. So, Joseph Smith would bring up the case again, but this time with a non-Mormon judge outside of Nauvoo. After reviewing the case, Joseph Smith and the leaders were again acquitted. But all of that wouldn't be enough. At this point, the governor of Illinois, Thomas Ford, had arrived in Carthage, and the non-Mormons are completely in a frenzy about all of this. The Warsaw Signal, another newspaper, felt they couldn't let the law let Joseph Smith off the hook. The paper said, quote, we hold ourselves at all times in readiness to cooperate with our fellow citizens to exterminate, utterly exterminate the wicked and abominable Mormon leaders, end quote. So the signal would then call for an attack on Nauvoo, declaring, quote, strike them for the time has come, end quote. Now, with all of this going on, it's hard to gauge the intentions of Governor Ford at this point. He would write a letter to Joseph Smith demanding that he make himself present in Carthage or that he'd send the militia to collect him. Joseph Smith would write back asking him to come to Nauvoo and see things for himself, but that he didn't dare go to Carthage for the threats that were taking place against his life. Joseph and Hiram Smith even had the idea at this point to flee Nauvoo altogether and head west until all of this had more or less blown over. However, 
The people of Nauvoo were worried that they'd be invaded by the Illinois militia, and some Mormons even called Joseph Smith a coward. Joseph Smith would record this incident in his journal and state that if his life was of no worth to his friends, it was of no worth to himself. Governor Ford, looking to appease the angry non-Mormons, would then write to Joseph Smith and promise that he'd be safe in Carthage. He'd even commit his honor and that of the people of Illinois that Joseph Smith would be safe. Sorry, Illinois, you're on the hook for this one. So here is where Governor Ford's intentions really come into question. Joseph Smith and about a dozen other leaders arrive in Carthage in the middle of the night. There is a mob waiting for them, and they demand to see Joseph Smith. The governor seems to tell them to wait, they'll get their chance, and to leave. So the next day, they stand trial. These are initial proceedings to see if the Mormons have enough of a case to make bail, while the details are all being organized for the official trial. So the evidence is presented, and they do make bail. The Mormons are packing up and heading back to Nauvoo. Or are they? As they are getting ready to leave, the sheriff shows up again, and this time, he arrests Joseph and Hiram Smith on charges of treason. If you'll remember back in episode 24, Joseph Smith and the Mormon leadership were held in Liberty Jail on charges of treason, as it is one of the only charges for which no bail is offered. This was a breach of the law. You couldn't arrest someone without first having a court case. Governor Ford signed the arrest warrant saying that he didn't know, but it turns out he probably did know. Governor Ford, before being governor, was a justice of the peace, and he was a lawyer. He knew the law. The people of Illinois were looking to hold Joseph Smith and Hiram long enough to kill them. So, Joseph and Hiram are incarcerated in the Carthage jail, and the next day, Governor Ford takes the militia and heads off to Nauvoo. Now, he had said that he was taking the militia so that they wouldn't attack Joseph Smith, but halfway to Nauvoo, he'd release them and tell them to go home. One of the men in the militia was the writer for the Warsaw Signal, the one that called the people to arms against the Mormons. They didn't go home, but collected their guns and headed for the Carthage jail. As Governor Ford would make his way to Nauvoo, he'd sit down for dinner in the home of Joseph Smith while rifles were shooting up the Mormon prophet in Carthage. Governor Ford's actions would never be called into question. So the date was June 27th of 1844, and in the Carthage jail, Joseph and Hiram Smith were in a somber mood. Dan Jones, another Mormon, had told Joseph Smith that he'd been among the locals that day and that there were plots on the Mormon prophet's life. As Joseph and Hiram Smith, John Taylor, and Willard Richards sat in the jailer's bedroom on the second story of the Carthage jail, over 100 men in a mob, faces painted black, attacked the jail. As some began to shoot through the windows, others entered the jail and began to make their way up the stairs the guards doing nothing to stop them. The Mormons quickly shut the door when a ball was shot through the lock. Joseph's dear brother Hiram, who'd stood with him from the beginning, immediately threw his shoulder against the door to hold it closed. At that point, a second ball was shot through the door. This one would hit Hiram directly in the face, striking him on the left side of his nose and knocking him back to the ground. Hiram would scream that he was a dead man, as two more balls would strike him as he was on the ground. According to John Taylor's journal, Joseph Smith would run to Hiram and scream, My dear brother. At that point, Joseph Smith would stand up, remove a pistol that had been smuggled into the jail for his protection, and he'd discharge six times into the mob. At that point, John Taylor would sprint for the window, evidently looking to jump out. 
As he arrived at the window, he'd be shot through the back of the thigh and scream, I'm shot. As he fell against the window seal and then to the floor, where he'd crawl across the room and under the bed, he'd be shot three additional times in the knee, the arm, and in the hip. Now, pausing the story here real quick, as John Taylor landed against the window seal, his pocket watch would be crushed in the fall. As it was shown to his family, many would believe that the pocket watch must have been hit by a ball to save his life. His life was miraculously saved, but the watch didn't help with that. So back to our story, Joseph Smith would then run for the window. As he arrived at the window seal, he was simultaneously hit in the chest with the ball from outside, and two balls hit him in the back. With the yell of, Oh Lord my God, he fell from the second story window, dying on the ground below. The mob members would scream that he'd leapt from the window and immediately leave the room. They got what they wanted. Willard Richards would attend to John Taylor as screams of the Mormons are coming frightened the mob from the scene. Joseph the prophet and his brother Hiram were killed at Carthage Jail. The next day, Willard Richards took Joseph and Hiram's bodies back to Nauvoo. Now, the entire state of Illinois was completely on the edge. Most of the people in Warsaw and Carthage left town and left their homes, worried that the Nauvoo Legion would attack at any minute. Willard Richards would plead with the people of Nauvoo to keep the peace. They didn't want a war. That day, over 10,000 people would file through the mansion house in Nauvoo to view the bodies of Joseph and Hiram Smith. These killings would break the people of Nauvoo. Their resolve to stay in Nauvoo was shattered. One of the mourners looking upon the bodies was the mother of Joseph and Hiram Smith, Lucy Mack Smith. She would record her feelings at seeing her murdered children. She would write, quote, After the corpses were washed and dressed in their burial clothes, we were allowed to see them. I had for a long time braced every nerve, roused every energy of my soul, and called upon God to strengthen me. But when I entered the room and saw my murdered sons extended both at once before my eyes and heard the sobs and groans of my family, the cries of father, husband, brothers from the lips of their wives, children, brothers and sisters, it was too much. I sunk back crying to the Lord in the agony of my soul, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken this family? A voice replied, I have taken them to myself that they might have rest. And as I looked upon their peaceful, smiling countenances, I seemed to almost hear them say, Mother, weep not for us, for we have overcome the world by love. We carried to them the gospel that their souls might be saved. They slew us for our testimony, and thus placed us beyond their power. Their ascendancy is for a moment. Ours is an eternal triumph. End quote. After the viewing, George Cannon would wrap the Mormon leaders' faces in fabric. It was time to prepare the death masks and capture those countenances. They would forever be saved in plaster. These death masks would be the most accurate likeness of the Mormon prophet and his brother available without photography. Now, at the time, there were several death masks made, but only the original set are still in existence. So, what role did the Nauvoo death masks play in the history of the church? After the Mormons would leave Nauvoo, fear set in that someone would disturb the bodies. So over the years, the bodies of Joseph and Hiram Smith were moved several times. In 1994, the Mormon church would desire to bury Joseph Smith next to the gravesite of Emma. Officials would use the Nauvoo death masks to identify the remains of Joseph and bury them in the correct site. Also, 
After George Cannon created the death masks, he'd eventually give them to Philo Dibble. Philo was one of Joseph Smith's bodyguards in Nauvoo, and he'd tour around the West, displaying the death masks and telling the prophet's story. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, young Cyrus Dallin saw those death masks when he was just 12 years old. He was so moved, this would inspire him to pursue a career of sculpting. He wanted to capture that emotion in his works. Philo Dibble, after toying them around, would donate them back to the church in Salt Lake City. Now, where can you see the Nauvoo death masks today? The death masks are in the Church History Museum in Salt Lake City. You can see them in person or look them up online if you're not in Utah. There is something moving in these objects. If you look closely, you can still see the bullet wound on the left side of Hiram's nose. Also found at the Church History Library is John Taylor's broken pocket watch, still broken. And another interesting item in the library is a black powder horn that was owned by a member of the militia in Warsaw. Now, we don't know the specific individual's name who owned it, but we do know that he was in the mob that killed Joseph Smith. He would proudly carve this inscription into the side of the black powder horn, quote, Warsaw Regulators, the end of the polygamist Joseph Smith killed at Carthage Jail, June 27, 1844, end quote. With that object, you might think that this individual just sealed his conviction with this evidence. Not true, however. Of the 100 men involved in the attack that killed Joseph and Hiram Smith, only nine were ever indicted. Of those nine, four fled the state, including the person most witnesses said was seen to have shot Joseph Smith first. Only five would ever be brought up on trial. One of them was Thomas Sharp, the publisher of the Warsaw Signal that wrote the letter to exterminate the Mormons. Aside from the black powder horn, there was a mountain of evidence against these men. However, they were all acquitted of murder and went on with their lives. So what did the Mormons do now? What of the law and of justice? Maybe it was time to look away from America. But who was in charge? And where were they to go? So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this rather somber episode of the History of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and 50 Objects. As always, if you have questions or comments, you can reach out to me directly at Joe. H-O-M-C, History of Mormon Church. Yes, I know, I need to change that at gmail.com. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it on social media or leave me a review on iTunes. It helps spread the message. Thanks again for listening. 